Hello, welcome to the Pastoral Thoughts Podcast. This is your host, Jack Young, and uh, back once again by popular demand. <laughs> uh, evangelist Reverend Doug Whitesides, and um, he's just come back from Alaska here not too long ago and had some adventures there, and I think we're going to be talking about that this episode, so that'll be uh, exciting. And uh, Brother Whitesides, tell us about your burden for Alaska. Well, um, my first trip to Alaska was in 1984, and I've made 35 trips up there since then. Um, five I have driven in the last year and a half, driven up and back. And um, how, how many miles is that? That's 4,000 miles from here. Now, how long does that take you driving? Well, depends. It depends on the weather. If you go in the summertime when the weather's good, then you're... Uh, constantly bombarded with um, RVers and mm -hmm. traffic that you normally don't have the rest of the time. But uh, a minimum of seven days and normally nine or ten. And, and so you're getting uh, about 800 miles a day, something like that? Well, uh, seven. 700, 700 long, miles a day. Long hours. But you're, but you're a young man. Oh, yes, yeah. How young are you? 81. I turned 81 <laughs> okay. in April. And, yeah. And uh, give us a little bit of your background. We we have talked about uh, just your experience in ministry, but you've been in ministry for how long and what you've been what have you been doing mostly? Um I've been preaching. In fact, in October it'll I will complete 61 years mm -hmm. of preaching. Started in uh as a young man, uh, got saved off a bar stool at 19. July 13th, 1961, and uh, within two months, I was in Bible college in culture shock, <laughs> and um, they didn't know what to do with me then, and they don't know what to do with me now, I'm <laughs> sure. afraid, um, but um, I've given most of my life to preaching to military. Mm -hmm. uh, I spent 26 years at Great Lakes Naval Training Base, north of Chicago, which was a phenomenal ministry, especially during Vietnam. We had six services every Sunday, 10, wow. 11, 4, 6, and 7. Wow. And uh, I can tell you that once you've preached six times on Sunday, you don't even know what your name is. <laughs> <laughs> you wonder if that yeah. last service you made yeah. any sense at all. Yeah. But uh, things were very critical, and our guys were going out to die. Yes. And and uh, if we and we served them two and a half meals on Sundays, so that we could keep them there all day, mm -hmm. and um, not against their will, of course, but uh, so that if they got saved in the morning, we could give them some information to help them live in a hostile environment as they left to go to war. Right, and um, and we lost a lot of a lot of young men that that were saved at Great Lakes, and those were wonderful days. I yeah, mean, so there was a window of opportunity there in yes. that war. Or guys and, were getting really serious. And they were thinking about it. Mm -hmm. They were thinking about dying and mm -hmm. the reality of it. And and that was a fertile ground to plant the seed. And mm -hmm. I can tell you that there were there were Sundays when um, every military person in the room was at the altar. Yeah. And it was not uncommon for an altar service to go a half hour or an hour because I mean you can't you need to take time with these mm -hmm. kids that are they're giving their hearts to the Lord. And a lot of these young men uh, had never been in church before. 
largely unchurched. I mean, they would not have a clue what a hymnal was sure. or what the components of a service uh, were. They wouldn't have a clue. And so it, it was kind of an in-your-face ministry. You'd have to teach them right from the pulpit, you know, mm-hmm. what was correct church behavior and demeanor and what wasn't and what was acceptable. It was almost like a junior church. Yeah, that's right. And, um, but man, we saw, we just saw amazing things happen in the, the, uh, four o'clock service in the afternoon was geared toward getting men out of the hospital, uh, into our services. And I've seen men come down the aisle in, uh, wheelchairs and on crutches and, and, um, the last time I was here, I preached on the the four men with the man of palsy breaking up the roof, and we had some corpsmen back then like that that were just nuts, and and all they knew was their buddies had to get to Christ, and uh-huh. and they would drag them out of the hospital, and they would work with them and and physically to get them ready to get into our vans and get them to the and get them to the church. And um, on one occasion, they even brought in a guy that was in a full body cast. I mean, from his neck to his ankles. He's in a body cast. I don't know how they got him out of the hospital. I'm surprised they got him released. And when they got him into the, I mean, what what do you do with a guy that's in a full body cast? So they they didn't ask me. They just brought him into the service and propped him up in the corner. It's, (laughs) I mean, it's not like he's going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, and and during the invitation, I I saw him back in the corner, and he was hollering. And the, the corpsman got up immediately, and I thought, man, the cast is so heavy, his feet are probably swollen, and and that's not what he wanted. He wanted to go forward, and he and so I saw one of the corpsmen get under one arm, and another corpsman get under another arm, and they went right across the back of the auditorium and brought him right down, right down to the altar, and now I could hear him because he was close to me. And he said, uh, I know I'm supposed to kneel, but I can't kneel. So just lay me out on the floor. I'm not worthy to stand. So they just laid him out on the floor, and that's where he got saved. Wow. So amazing things like that uh, happened during the war. That, And I've spent a lot of my time, even in later years, um, with Vietnam vets and just listening yeah. to their stories because um, nobody believes them. And, and you know, they had such a plight oh i mean we we sent him to do a job that we wouldn't do and then we spit on him when they came home yeah so uh i've got a special forced him to do that job yes involuntarily yep so i've got a special place in my heart for vietnam vets and Mm. and uh, i'll always have a special place in my heart for uh, the military and so 20 uh, 26 years at great lakes and then uh where did you go from there uh, I went to um, Atlanta and planted a church there at the the Air Force uh, at the Naval Air Force Base there, and then from there to Luke Air Force Base in the desert uh, in Arizona, west of Phoenix, and um, and then we planted churches all over the world and trained pastors. And as I've gotten older, <laughs> much older, um, I'm now I spend most of my time overseas. Uh, training national pastors Mm -hmm. and putting into their hands the tools they need to get the job done. Because Mm -hmm. I found out from practical experience that nobody can preach to a Korean like a Korean. Nobody can Mm -hmm. preach to a Liberian like a Liberian. Mm -hmm. And so our job 
as Americans is to get in and and teach them the Bible and put into their hands the tools they need to get the job done and let them do it and get out of Dodge. Amen. We're, we should not be making little Americans all over the world. Sure. That's not the point. Amen. Yeah, amen. And so um, what is it about Alaska that you um, – What's well, your burden and what's your vision? And I know there's a particular part of Alaska that you're interested in, not just the state as a whole, but different um, villages. Yeah. yeah, there are, there are. well, the further north you go through Canada and the further inland you get into Alaska, the more desolate it becomes. And so you've got isolated villages. Um, and... Uh, to my knowledge, at this point, there are 41 villages that don't have a church of any kind. And in my the, the goal of our ministry through the years has been to go where no one else can go or will go. There are a lot of places Americans can go, but they're not going to go. I mean, I made two trips into Siberia, and the last time I was there, it was the first day of spring, and it had warmed up to a balmy 40 degrees below zero. Amazing. And they were thrilled to death. I mean, the mood was festive because it wasn't 100 below. <laughs> and um, so Americans are not lining up to no. go to Siberia, no. nor are they lining up to go into the villages. And uh, the tragedy of that is that the, you know, the big shots are not going into the villages sure. because it, it's just too tough. The average village has about how many people there? It varies. Uh, I was in a village two weeks ago. Uh, preaching on Sunday, and that village they say has 150 people. I don't know where they wow. are, but uh, probably there are. Uh, so you said the village is usually like a um, bar slash inn. Well, not like, even that. Like a general store. No, no, not even that. No, uh, the, uh, in 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 most of the villages you'll have a school. Okay, and um, you may have a church. That could be anything. That could be Russian Orthodox mm -hmm. because of the Russian okay. uh, influence in Alaska mm -hmm. over the years. Um, it could be most anything. But uh, uh, there so, are so no little, stores. Little school, little church. Yeah, and, and just houses that, that they have built. And they're... Some of them are, are very primitive. Now, the, I don't, I've never seen igloos up there. Sure. Um, I'm sure there are in places. Um, but I'm talking about Eskimos and Indians as well as Caucasians that uh, are just pioneering in, in those. They love it. They love the hunting. They love the fishing. They love that lifestyle. And you run into some real characters in oh I bet you yeah. have to be a character well and and you've got to be very self sufficient yeah and tough and uh, I was just in fact two weeks ago when I was in the village I met an amazing lady um, she uh, met us uh, I flew into Kodiak and then um, my Eskimo friend came over in a boat to pick me up to take me to the village. And when we got to the village, this lady was there to help unload. And um, she looked like a, a bag lady. I mean, if mm -hmm. you saw her on the street here, mm -hmm. you'd think, think she, she was, was a bag lady. And, yeah. yeah, she's got boots on and, and uh, jeans and uh, a ratty-looking jacket and a, a wool hat on top of her head. And you talk about tough. <laughs> I mean, I saw her pick up 
60-pound uh, bag of peat moss and just throw it in the back of the pickup truck. Uh-huh. And um, over the weekend, I found out who this lady was. Her name is Nancy Hillstrand. And that wouldn't probably mean anything to you, but anybody that's ever watched the fishing shows on Bristol Bay knows who Nancy Hillstrand and her husband were. Interesting. They were the pioneers of the the, um, uh, show Deadliest Catch. Oh, really? And this lady owns a big packing company in Homer and runs it by herself. She's an amazing lady. Wow. And... She came over to the house where... That's what you call a woolly booger. I guess so. Yeah. She came over to the house where where I was and uh, where I was staying with my Eskimo friend, Ivan and uh, Kathy Lukeen. And uh, she was just... She sat at the table and she was just fascinated, mesmerized by the stories uh-huh. and, and of the, the things that I've seen God do. And they said to her... Well, you need to come to church tomorrow and listen to this guy preach. So she came. Uh, and after the service was over, this lady, this multimillionaire, said to me, you painted a tapestry for us this uh, morning. She said, I've never heard anything like that. Well, wouldn't it be something if, if a lady like that could come to Christ and really have her life transformed? Amen. She could reach the villages by herself. Oh, oh and I imagine that... Um just being in desolate wilderness like that, yeah, the, the, the church would be um, somebody's life. Yes. What, what, um, what, would a, what would a church look like in these 41 different villages? Well. Would it be in it? Would it be, where would it meet? And when would it? And then also, like, I would think with, um, you know, if, if, in your estimation or imagination, what would a man do? Like, would he pastor three or four churches in three or four different villages? Or, Well, the days of that happening are pretty much over. Okay. For a missionary to go to a small village and give his life for, uh, and there are not 150 people in most of the villages. You're talking okay. about 30, 40. So these are like outposts. Yes, and they're very remote and that's why they don't have churches is because it is so expensive to get anything there mm-hmm. because it has to be flown in, shipped in, however you can get to them. And uh, one of the things I've discovered is that in all of these villages, they have a cutting-edge school. Okay. So you, which would, means, you can rent. Which means they have access to the satellite. Okay. And to the Internet. Okay. So that if we could get into these villages and train people to set up this equipment, Mm -hmm. we could pipe the services right in there on Sunday, and it wouldn't matter if there are three or four or if there are 10 or 12 or 15. I've held meetings in the villages. Uh, In fact, years ago, I flew into a place called Igigik, and uh, E-G-E-G-I-K, it's on Bristol Bay. It's a fishing village. Okay. And... As the commercial flight comes in, and when I say commercial, I'm talking about a four-seater, they circle the village, and then the people know that the plane is there. Uh And so if they've got groceries coming or if they've got people coming, then they go to the airstrip. Go to the plane. Yeah. So uh, it was cold, bitter cold, and I circled this village, and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I'm going to spend a week here. And, and I held a meeting Sunday through Sunday, and the most people we had in any given service was 14. Wow. 
But somebody's got to get in there and do the preaching. I think 14 people out of, let's say, 150 people living in that region, that's, um, you know, that's uh, over about 10% of the population. Well, when I preached in the village that had 150, Mm -hmm. there were 60 people there. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so I wish I could keep up that ratio here in the States. So probably um, what it would look like if you get some people saved, some believers, and say, meet at this location on Sunday, and then yeah. we'll we'll uh, preach by way of satellite, and maybe they, they you can uh, yeah. set up some preliminaries, you know, taking some prayer requests, and you know, can pray in a local location, and maybe go through a written lesson, then they can watch a church service together. And, and we could together. stream it right in there. Yeah. So that's and there's a lot of churches that do that uh, stateside. Yes, um, which sometimes does make sense to me, especially if you got like 150 people uh, watching a yeah. screen. You think, uh, what's the point of that? But, yeah, um, yeah. But that, there, it makes sense. It makes sense because they're so remote and they're so hard to get to, and mm-hmm. it's so expensive. Can you imagine just how expensive it would be to? Purchase the materials and transport the materials in there to build the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be just astronomical. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then to um, raise the amount of money for a missionary, they'd have to go there and live. He would need yeah. six figures probably just to be able to yep. make ends meet. Uh, and there's a few. I don't know if you know, know this. I've heard of the Suttons. They're missionaries to Point Hope, Alaska. And it's a, it's a village of, or maybe it's a town. Uh, 600 people and uh-huh. it's out it's like a little point it's like point hope and it's a little point out into the arctic ocean and um i think there's nothing but seals polar bears and Probably. 600 people living there yeah <laughs> i had the opportunity uh back in the 80s to preach in the high arctic and um and when i say high arctic that's not alaska that's northwest territories anuvik Klavik, uh tuck toya tuck those are all towns up on near the Arctic Sea. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Tuktoyotuk is where the Rocky Mountains disappear into the Arctic Sea, right on top of the earth. Okay. And um, uh, we just recently got there. We've been there for maybe 20, 25 years. I say we, I'm talking about independent Baptist. Um, the Catholics were there 200 years ago. The Jehovah's Witnesses were there 100 years ago. Mm. So that gives you an idea. Uh, we're a little behind. Mm. And and it's because of the price involved. I can tell you that I have spent nights in Alaska where I thought I was going to freeze to death. I mean, uh, you talk about cold. Mm. Sleeping on an army cot under those old olive green wool army blankets. and uh, But... And so, and so um, I'm sure people listening wonder, why on earth do people live there? Well, a lot of it is culture. Uh, these are Eskimos and Indians. Mm-hmm. They are, and by the way, you can normally tell the difference, although they're, okay. they're very mixed. Uh, it's not as simple as we Caucasians would like to think it is. But mm-hmm. when hunting season comes, Eskimos go toward the sea. Indians go toward the mountains to hunt. Okay. So... Uh, your your Eskimos are, and they do hunt also. It's not exclusive, but that's the basic difference I see in between Eskimos and Indians. But it's difficult to tell the difference. But I mean, these are these are Americans. Mm-hmm. 
that have never heard the gospel before. That's my heartbeat. I'm concerned about uh, taking the gospel in where it's never been and giving it to people who've never heard. And uh, somebody as sophisticated as Nancy Hillstrand just was mesmerized by the reality of the gospel and the power of the gospel. Mm -hmm. You know, it is because she's a tough lady. She knows what it is to camp out. And, Mm -hmm. and in fact, she met the Lukeens and wanted to just camp in their yard until she met a black bear in the middle of the night. And then she decided maybe she would come in and Uh, take their offer uh, to sleep inside. Yeah. (laughs) She's a tough lady. So, at any rate, uh, that's my heartbeat, and okay. it has always been to go. I'm not. I'm really not interested in nothing wrong with that necessarily, but not interested in building on somebody else's foundation. I want to go where nobody else can go or will go. Mm-hmm. And because of what we've done over these many, many years, there are a lot of places in the world that only I can go mm-hmm. that uh, a, a normal American could never get to. He would he would never make it. Yeah. And uh, for instance, in Mindanao, which is in the southern Philippines, when I fly into Mindanao, Mindanao is the headquarters for right wing Muslim terrorism. Mm-hmm. The guys that blew up the Pentagon and the trade towers did all their testing and their their recruiting and their uh, their their preliminary uh, work for the for that. For those attacks in Mindanao, Abu Sayyaf or something like that. I think yes. that's the name of that of wing. that organization. Mm-hmm. And so when I fly in there, the State Department tells me not to go because mm-hmm. Americans are just bait for kidnapping. Right? Yeah we we have a gentleman in our church who's Indian, Gulshan. Yes, I met and, him. Okay, yeah, and he he goes there, but since he's Indian, he doesn't get bothered at all. Yeah. Well, when I fly in there, and I have had a high military briefing on on my deportment in Mindanao, and by the way, I have met with the former president, uh, I'm trying to think of his name, um, who was the mayor of uh, Dabao. Um, I can't believe I can't think of his name, but I've been in I his office either. many yeah. times and prayed with him. Yeah. And... Um, uh, it's amazing when you go where no one else has go, has been, the, there are no lines, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you don't have to wait in line, but when I fly in there, I'm met by three undercover bodyguards packing 45s and with the high level uh, briefing I got, they said, just quietly and quickly get through the airport, get your stuff, get into the vehicle and get out of there. Mm-hmm. And then when I go to the hotel, and I'm not talking about American hotel, yeah. I'm talking about Filipino hotel. When I get there, I cannot answer the phone. I cannot leave the room. I cannot uh, talk to anyone on my own. Those those bodyguards are with me 24-7. And then when I go out to preach, if I'm preaching in the open air, I have five additional bodyguards that go in uniform packing AK-47s and 45s and they kind of screen the area to make sure that there's nobody there that would uh, harm me. And then when we go to preach to the remote duty stations that are back in the jungle, I have an additional three that go ahead of us on motorcycles with walkie-talkies because we have to go through Muslim villages. And so they're talking to us all the time so that we don't drive into an ambush. Mm-hmm. 
So it's very dangerous. I mean, the average American never. No, no. And it, that's what Gulshan said. It says, um, you know, and they've told him, don't ever bring a, a white man here yeah. unless you want him to die. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, what uh, what prepared you to, because I know, I know you've got stories similar to this, like um, being in Africa, or, uh, Liberia. Yeah, Liberia, West Africa. <laughs> and, uh, and and other different places around the world. What, uh, what prepared you to get so far out of your comfort zone and put your life in danger? Is there something that just kind of... Uh, you know, there's... The truth of the matter is there's no way to prepare for it. Uh, it's not... It's not so much a matter of preparation as it is a matter of obedience. Mm -hmm. And Great Lakes, because I spent 26 years at Great Lakes, Great Lakes was a naval training station. And we had 30,000 men stationed there at all times, between 30 and 35,000. And in a period of a year, we would rotate through that base over 100,000 men. So training was the issue. So mm -hmm. we would have not only American guys there, but we would have sailors from foreign nations all around the globe mm -hmm. at Great Lakes getting training. Well, when we got those guys in the church, they wanted us to the come, and that's how I got to Liberia. Okay. And, and, um, and for people listening, in the United States uh, military, you can join from any nation on earth and it's a pathway to citizenship once you get in. And so I know I pastored a military church for nine yes. years. We had people from all, literally all over the world who were on a pathway to, you know, to U.S. citizenship. That's not what the what these guys were actually sailors from their country. Oh, and, the, and so it was um, the United States Navy training these other yes. na nations. Because the United gotcha. States sells to these third world countries okay. our outdated So that's how it hardware. opened doors all over the world for you. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Okay. And, and you know, the, the story of how we got into Liberia is just incredible. Just one E3 sailor. Yeah. And, and God just turned his life inside out in our ministry. And when he left to go back to Liberia, he said, you'll be hearing from me. Well, you know, <laughs> so yeah, being sure. a military yeah, pastor. Right. Yeah, you Don't hear that all breath. the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, he went back and tried to get an appointment with the chaplain general of the armed forces of Liberia. Well, an E3 is not going to see the general, I can tell you. The only way an E3 would see the general is if he was washing his car or polishing his mm -hmm. boots or saddling mm -hmm. his horse. That's the only way mm -hmm. he would see the general. Well, the the staff officer would not let him in to see the general. An E3 is just not going to sure. do that. So he kept going back. Every day after he got off duty, he went by the office of the chaplain general. And so finally one day after three weeks of this, and the staff officer just reading the riot act of this kid, the general's door was open, and he came, burst through the door and said, what is all this racket out here? And the staff officer told him, sir, I'm telling you, I've told this kid for every day for three weeks he cannot have an appointment. Well, what does he want? Well, he's been to America, and he's met some people over there, and he thinks they ought to come here. And the general said, well, send him in. I'm not doing anything right now. Send him in. Well, you pastoring a military church, you know a little something about officer protocol. Mm-hmm. When you go in to see the general, when the general sits down, you sit down. When the general stands up, you stand. Well, this kid doesn't know anything about that. Uh -huh. He's an E3. The general sat down, and he just paced back and forth in front of his <laughs> desk and told him that he needed to get us over there immediately. Well, if you're a full bird colonel, you don't tell, tell the, the general, general what, what he, he has to do. To do. Yeah. Yeah. And so 
Two weeks later, I got a letter from the Deputy Chaplain General of the Armed Forces of Liberia and saying, we, the chaplaincy of, Liber- of the Armed Forces of Liberia, want to be part of you. How soon can you come? Yeah. Well, they thought we'd be there in 15 minutes. You know, they didn't realize that we're on the other side of the world. And you don't go crashing into some third world country mm-hmm. without a network of God's people praying for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is dangerous, dangerous stuff. Mm-hmm. And on that first trip, I was almost executed yeah. there. Yeah, you told us about that. Yeah. So uh, that's how it happens. It happens all different kinds of ways. And and people have said to me over the years, how do you make this happen? I don't make it happen. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just trying to stay close to it's, somebody who does. It's the old uh, I being the I being in the way the, the Lord, Lord led, led me. me. Yes, <laughs> Eliezer's um, famous statement. Right. So being at Great Lakes all that time and having all these people come in for training and being there for a short duration of time, uh, and their learning curriculum when they go. And I was telling somebody yesterday we were out for a jog, and I was saying how he was studying for something for his job, and I said. Most soldiers are always in school yes. and, tra- and training for something, and they always got their three-by-five cards because they've got yeah. <clears throat> exams coming up. Yes. So a lot of times they look at church in the same regard, and uh, you, you developed a lot of working curriculum while you were at Great Lakes, didn't you? Yes, I did, uh, and especially because of my background. I was saved off a bar stool at 19, and I didn't know anything about the Bible. And it's kind of a long, involved story, but I can make it short. I realized that uh, somebody said to me as a young Christian, you need to get a hold of an Edger Myers Bible mm-hmm. storybook and read it. Mm-hmm. Now, well, I read it through twice. And the great advantage of that as a young Christian was it, it deals with the Bible in chronological order. Yeah. And so the first time I tried to do anything visually with that, was in 1986, and it was just really rough to begin with, and I used to do it on a chalkboard, and it was pitiful. Yeah. And then came the overhead projector, and then slides, and now, of course, it needs to be digitized, and I've taken it all over the world and Mm -hmm. trained national pastors with it. That's amazing. Uh, We had Eggemeyers, and... um we, we use it with our kids when, our, when sure. they were real, real young, but it is it is amazing curriculum. And uh, even having been through the Bible a bunch of times, raised in a Christian home, there's different things that are brought out in those different stories. That is that so? And look at it. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, it's a classic. Yes, and so you, you would you would develop that curriculum. Yeah, uh, I. That was just kind of refined the, and refined and refined it. Yes. Yeah. And every time I did it. I critiqued it mm-hmm. because I really wanted this to be uh, anybody can make it complicated, you know, but to make it simple mm-hmm. so that the wayfaring man, though a fool, need not err therein. Um, it takes a lot of work to simplify yes, it. And yeah. I don't mean to destroy it, I mean to just take biblical truth and simplify it. Right. And I had a, Bibli- a Bible professor years ago say, in an Old Testament survey class, students, if you can't take what you're preaching and explain it to a six-year-old yeah. so that he understands it, you don't understand it yourself. That's right. Yeah, profundity is clothed in simplicity. Yeah, I was I was just reading the other day the reformer Luther uh, yeah. would uh, tell his children, explain to his children what he's preaching on in the next sermon, and he figured if his children understand what he was <clears throat> understood what he was saying. Uh, the adults congreg- would get it. Congregation would get it. 
Yeah. yeah. Amen. It, and um, so this this is this is kind of the thing that you would also a, cur- a curriculum that you would have for the um, there in Alaska where you have a lot of yes biblically illiterate people. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, I would go in, and and it's good for churches. You'd be surprised how many uh, churches could benefit. Absolutely. Just their Sunday school teachers could benefit by having something simple. And after doing this, I can do it in uh, in less than three hours, and I can put into their hands something that will structure their Bible study for the rest of their ministry. And so even with an interpreter, which would take it, a little longer than that, mm-hmm. uh, I can still do it. And then when I finish it to to reward the third world pastors, I'll I'll give them a tool of some kind, um, like Haley's Bible Handbook yes, or Strong's yeah. Concordance. Mm-hmm. They're a little heavier and harder to get overseas, mm-hmm. but a tool. And you would think when I hand a, a third world pastor a Haley's Bible handbook, think you would, a million bucks? you'd think I would just given him the keys to a brand new Cadillac. Yeah. You know, because they don't have anything. Sure. I mean, some of these pastors don't even have a bicycle. Say nothing about a car. Yeah. You know, so to give them a valuable tool like that. And, and then when, after I've done the overview, then I come back and I teach the Pentateuch, mm-hmm. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then I'll come back and do the first uh, uh, six historical books and then the last six historical books so that they've got it. And the miracle that took place in the Philippines in Mindanao was that we paid for the village pastors, the mountain pastors, to come down out of the mountains because these guys don't have anything. Right. And when I say paid them, I mean, pay for the transportation, like two dollars to get from the mountains. Because they're they're so a lot of them are so poor they, they they can't even afford a bicycle. No, that's right. Yeah. So, and and in a, to give you an idea, in a two week period, I paid for and served over fourteen thousand meals just to pastors and their mm. families, so that they could be in that conference. And so you know what they did, all during the conference, they. They, they were taking the English that I gave them and the notes that I gave them, that, that I passed out, and they were translating them into their local dialects. And then they went back into the mountains and had taught their it. own conference and taught it in the local dialect. And it doesn't get, it doesn't get any better than that. No. No. Yeah. And, and how better to reduplicate yourself right. over and over again. Well, and that's, that's what uh, we're supposed to do. You know, it's, uh, it's uh, 2 Timothy 2. Exactly. And, you know, the, the president of the seminary came to me and said, you know, the, the mountain pastors just love you, but they can't talk to you because they don't know English. Yeah. And mo- when you get close to the cities, most Filipinos are trilingual. They mm-hmm. speak their local dialect. They speak Tagalog, which is the national language, and they speak English. But when you get back up in the mountains, all they speak is their local dialect. They can't even talk to one another from village to village wow. up there. And so he said, they love you, but they, they can't come and talk to you. And I said, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want to have a special luncheon with just the mountain pastors. I don't want any city pastors there. And I want you to do the interpreting. And you you uh, do the meal. I'll pay for the meal. But I want to serve them. So he got all the mountain pastors and their wives together. 
and I served them, and they objected highly. You know, mm-hmm. no, we should be serving you. Mm-hmm. Said not according to Mark ten forty five, which says, "For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his mm-hmm. life a ransom for many." And that just tied me forever yeah. to the mountain Amen. pastors. You yeah. Know? Amen. Yeah, that's neat. Well, um, so you had a you had a what, what would you call it a bump in the road here a few <laughs> months ago, and your your mission to Alaska. Yes, I did. It, uh, it got um, waylaid or delayed. I or- had a horrific uh, automobile accident. I got hit head on by a semi on uh, the Alcan Highway um, in the Yukon, about forty five miles east of Whitehorse. And uh, it's a miracle of God that I survived. the The truck that I was in was completely totaled and destroyed, and and um, you know I had some problems. I still have some problems from it: uh, a broken arm and a mangled leg, and a few other things, and and uh, bruises and bumps. And but uh, God preserved me, and I have been quoting Psalm one eighteen twenty three a lot. Uh, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And even from the very beginning, even when I was on the way to the hospital, 45 minutes to the hospital, I was praying, Lord, just help me to be a good testimony in this so that you can get the glory. Yeah. Because it, uh, the, the guy who owned the junkyard where this vehicle went said, if I'd have been in any other vehicle, I would not be talking to him right now. Mm-hmm. And if I had been four inches to the left, I would have perished immediately. And when you had this wreck, you were in the middle of nowhere. Yes. <laughs> yes, I was in the, in the Yukon. And the further north you get, the more desolate it becomes. And gas stations are 200, 250 miles apart. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be careful. And, and the land is very unforgiving. Yeah. I know a couple of a couple that left too late from Alaska. They left after the window. The window is from uh, May 1st to October 1st, and they left in the middle of October, and they spent a week in a snowdrift in the the, uh, Yukon because nobody knew where they were. There's no cell service. They couldn't find them. The tracks, their tracks went off the road, are all covered up with fresh snow. No, and, and uh, it's not like you have snow plows out there plowing. And so it, at some point, yeah, you get in a snowstorm, and all yeah. you see is snow. You don't that's know. Right. There's no road out there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and so you you uh, ended up in a Canadian hospital, you are telling us last <laughs> night. Yes. Yeah, I did. And, and tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, it was, you know, it was... It was very difficult because I was not a Canadian and not part of the Canadian medical system. And uh, so they really were not too interested in treating me. They did not reset my broken arm. They they put a cast on it, which I was grateful for, but excruciating pain and a mangled leg and the skin was all burned off my right arm uh, from the airbag and uh, and just... Uh, bumps and bruises and my legs were all swelled up from the collision and and uh, my pe- my feet were turning purple from all the uh, internal bleeding and um, they turned me loose they didn't even keep me overnight for observation 
and so he was telling us last night, and I was impressed with this lady. I'm, I, yeah. I imagine that you maintain contact with I do. her, but um, but she helped get you out of the truck. Yes, when I when I regained consciousness, she was standing there. the The window was blown out of the driver's door, and she was standing there. And she said, "Sir, may I pry open? Uh, do you mind if I pry open your door?" And I said, "Ma'am, just have yourself a spell. Knock yourself <laughs> out." And a couple other men came and they pried open the door and and they helped me get out. and And she had been trained in first aid and in wilderness survival, and so she had a medical kit and blankets in the car. And uh, they got me into that car, and she drove me 45 minutes to the hospital and got me to a trauma team, and um, they saved my life. And then they were going to turn you out. They, they weren't going to keep you overnight. They're, they're going to turn you out with a broken arm and everything. And um... So I called her and asked her if she'd come back to the hospital and get me, and she did. Mm-hmm. And she took me to a motel where there was a restaurant attached and uh, saw that I got into a room and then – and saw that the that the motel was responsible for uh, bringing food to my room because here I am, I'm in a foreign country, I don't have my phone, I can't call my wife, I can't call the people I know in Alaska. I mean, I am just in a bad way and in, and in horrific pain. And they didn't give me anything for pain but Tylenol. But you know what? In the midst of all of that, God was there. Yeah. And uh, and I was talking to him regularly, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know you're never really alone, right? Amen, amen. Yeah. It's always a long road to recovery, and that that uh, wreck happened three months ago. You said, yeah, March first, and you've been pre- back preaching for last month. Yes, and um, and so what what's your what's your plans for the future? You plan on getting back to Alaska? Yes, yes, I am. I I needed to come back to the states or. Uh, back to the lower 48 uh, to get another vehicle because this ve- my vehicle is going to be tied up in Canada for the next two and a half, three years. And uh, before that is all settled. Before the, um, the insurance, you get paid from your insurance. Well, yeah, um, but I did not have full coverage on the, on the truck, so they're not going to replace the vehicle. But, but the, the legal or the financial problem is my name is still tied to the loan for the truck and the truck is going to be tied up for a couple of years. So Mm -hmm. I had to come back and do something about a vehicle and God's been really good. Uh, Sent in $15,000 to help get started replacing that vehicle. And, and as you know, $15,000 doesn't go too far, but, and we're just trusting the Lord to send in the rest of the funds so that I don't have two car payments. Mm -hmm. And the second one is, is just exorbitant because of the of the high interest rate because my name is on another loan, you know. So, at any rate, uh, God's bigger than all of that, Amen. and I'm trusting Him, and well, and I'm just walking day by day. And, and and when are you hoping to get back to Alaska? I'll be back by the end of the month, Lord willing. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah, yeah, I won't be long. All right, I'll, I'm gonna visit some churches and do some preaching here, and then I'm I'm headed back. So this day is June twelfth. And uh, you're hoping to be back by the end of the month, you said? Yes. Wow. Yep. And so here couple in a couple of weeks. weeks. And so by the yep. time you hear this podcast, you start praying for Brother Whiteside and his journey back to Alaska. Yeah, and, really. Um, headed to those 41 different villages. Yes. Well, Amen. That, well, that'll be exciting. Yeah, and I hope to meet with this lady and her husband and her cousin who also helped. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, the first thing they do when you get to the hospital is cut off all your clothes. So yeah. I didn't have any clothes. Yeah. And everything is in the truck. Yeah. So no modesty. Uh, they, yeah, they, they went out and bought me clothes and brought them to the motel and would not allow me to pay for them. No, yeah. Um, it, it, I, there's, pro there's probably good people like that. And there's probably a culture up there where they really depend upon each other. So yes. if someone is, uh, in harm's way, it's up to the fellow citizens to step up yeah. to the plate and help their neighbor out. Uh, even if that means like taking them 45 minutes here and there, different hospitals, We Christians hotels. could learn a lot from that, from amen. their culture. Well, I, yeah. I'll be praying for that lady and praying that her and her family get saved. Yes. And, amen. And then, uh. Uh, that'll be uh, one answer to to why the Lord uh, allowed you to get yeah. hit. <laughs> you know? And you know, hey, listen, I'm not worried about that. I'm right. trusting Him, Amen. and I know better than to ask those foolish questions. Yeah. Habakkuk tried that, and it didn't work out so well for him. Yeah, Amen. <laughs> because when the Lord answered his first question, he had more questions for which the answers were That's even right. more difficult. Yeah, well, it's kind of like Job. Yes. Yeah. Gird up your loins like a man. Yeah. And then he says, where were you <laughs> when I laid the foundations of the earth? Right? Yeah, that's, that's right. And he never, uh, the Lord never answered Job directly about why he allowed it. Um, so, you know, somebody, somebody said to me, a pastor just recently said to me, man, I don't believe your attitude. Well, that's God. <laughs> you know, listen, after all these years and all I've seen God do, I'm not worried about him taking care of me. If he can protect me in an accident like that, he can certainly meet my need uh, no matter where I am. Whether yeah. I'm in Alaska or whether I'm in the lower 48, he knows where those places are. Yeah, amen. How long are you going to be in Alaska for working? Ever. Okay. We're not going to yeah, see I'll you again, there. huh? Well, uh, you know, I, I will always yeah. come back to preach. And so and, uh, I so, can get so, on a plane. Well, I don't I'm have to drive. Forward, I'm looking forward to the report. Yeah, amen. When I see your face again. Okay. Yeah. Amen. All right. Hey, where, where can uh, folks fi find you? They can. Well, it's kind of difficult, but uh, I have an address in Alaska. It's 200 West 34th Avenue, number 103, Anchorage, Alaska, 99503. So you want to write to them. And yeah. then, um, okay. And there, there's uh, no website or anything like that, huh? No, not, not yet. There oh. will be shortly. Okay. Good deal. Yeah, I can give that address again, 200 West 34th Avenue, uh, number 103, Anchorage, Alaska, 99503. All right. Reach out to Brother Whiteside, and then if uh, you're a preacher or something out there and you want to talk to him, um, just look up Lighthouse Bible Baptist Church. Give us a call, and I will uh, I'll uh, give give you his number if you're yes, legitimate. Yes, amen. <laughs> okay? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, God bless each and every one. Thanks for tuning in today. And yeah, uh, we'll look forward to, to getting a report. Uh, God willing, Brother Whitesides will be back stateside sometime and can tell us about those uh, 41 villages and the things that God uh, has done and is doing. Looking forward to that. So we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much for listening today to the Pastoral Thoughts Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you can, leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. We'd appreciate that very much. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us by emailing us at pastoralthoughtsmail at gmail.com. And you can find out more about us at pastorjack.org. 
God bless you and have a wonderful day.